Sci-Fi Roundtable. I'm John Cronshaw. I'm Shane Thomas, and this is the roundest table we've ever had. With us today is Adam Stump. Hello. And we have Damon Ballard. Hello. And also Greg Projack. Today we're talking about artificial intelligence. So, Greg, you've written a series of books, and it's about AI. Uh, Why don't you get us started on your initial thoughts? Well, so far I've written the first two. The first one is The Girl with Acrylic Eyes. It starts off with a police inspector who is investigating an accusation of rape, and she suddenly discovers that the victim is not a human, but is actually an android. This leads to a totally different track. The android is sapient, as opposed to sentient. And the android wants to know its purpose. The main theme that I follow is about whether sapient androids should have rights What's the difference between sapience and sentience? First of all, you have sentient, which is uh, consciousness. It's aware of its own being. It has a subjective experience of reality. So, So your pet cats, if you have them, or your pet dogs, they are sentient animals. Even reptiles are sentient creatures. Sapient... They have wisdom, hopefully. You know, that's us. Um, <laughs> that, that's questionable. <laughs> well, yeah, it certainly is for some people. They have reasoning. They can solve problems with no prior experience to draw upon. A way I've thought about it is kind of like if you have a sentient being and it comes to a deep river, it'll try to swim or it'll just stay where it is. Whereas a sapient creature will work out some way of constructing a bridge or some other way of getting across. Puzzle solving, then. This is actually uh, based on the work of Professor Julian Jaynes that I reference in one of my books about uh, Stone Age hominins. What you refer to as sapience would be similar to what he calls consciousness in his book, The Origin of Consciousness, which is a very interesting, never disproven theory about the development of what you would refer to as sapience, or he would call consciousness. I'm intrigued by the theory, so it's interesting how that would develop in artificial intelligence. I think it is going to happen. We know how technology advances exponentially, and I'm sure one day we're going to have sapient AI and maybe even sapient androids. It's going to happen, just a case of when. The thing that I've approached is that we have to start thinking about it now before it happens so that we're prepared. I'm with you there. And I think that anything that achieves sapience deserves a certain citizenship or a personhood. I would also propose that as humans, as much as uh, there will be a portion of the population that is going to be ready for it, will be able to handle it. Most of us are just not going to react well. It's just... (laughs) I mean, we really don't treat one another that well all the time, so I would definitely agree with you. (laughs) Think of how the workers reacted with the spinning Jenny arriving and people smashing up the factories and things like that. Mm. That's the type of thing I think that you'll see with things like self-driving trucks. I'm halfway through The Girl with Acrylic Eyes, and I've really been enjoying the read. And uh, it, it sort of struck me as three things intertwined. 
One was uh, Weird Science, the movie, and the next was Law <laughs> All right, and it's Order. It's been on my reading list, and now I have to start soon. Thank you very you, you much. Got it, you've got to start it. So, so, so it's Weird Science with Law and Order SVU mixed with Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert oh, Heinlein. I love and, that book. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you what. Um, I see valentine michael smith in that book because he's a martian he's something alien and yet he's human and all through the book he's figuring out what it means to be human and i think that's really what greg is is touching on when he discusses sapience yeah becoming human and that's that's what i see all through the book and as i'm reading it, i'm like wow you know this has overtones with with some great stuff and the book asks a lot of questions and their moral ethical questions dealing with androids and i mean it's it's a provocative read for sure greg can you comment on those influences i haven't read them actually wow <laughs> to be quite honest now go read them and then you'll say holy cow what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> i will do at least it, it proves that i haven't tried to copy anybody it's great to be influenced by somebody but it's also great to come up along the same vein of someone else and have no idea who they are. A reviewer said this as well, that it, it kind of asks what it means to be human. Whereas I wasn't actually thinking of that when I wrote it. I was thinking more in terms of can a machine be considered a being? Because the androids in my books, the trilogy is called the Softened Trilogy. So, so they are softens. They are much, much more advanced. And in my opinion, in that state, they actually deserve to have rights than to to be treated as more or less equals. That's awesome. I mean, you're describing a parallel creation of the same thought process, and that's really kind of awesome to to see somebody come up with that independent uh, and unawares. <laughs> that's kind of a, a proof that it's a valuable proposal. It was actually inspired by a video I saw of um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's. If you consider that if an android is sapient and we send it into dangerous situations, can we just abandon it because it's a machine? Because it is sentient, it has its own self-awareness, it understands its surroundings and adjusts to them, adapts, etc. And it has a base reasoning capacity that is equal to or greater than the humans, which is what you need to be a softened. So do we have the right just to send them into these situations and abandon them? I don't address it in uh, my work anywhere nearly as deeply as Greg obviously has here. I approach AI more as a tool that beyond a certain point does become that self-aware thing. And that's why I developed my chart, which I think you may be key including in the show notes. The way I looked at that, it was just as a computer that will eventually reach the point of possibly sapience and sentience. And what does that look like? How do we differentiate at what point it goes from being just a really smart computer and just a tool to something like what Greg is talking about that uh, actually is worthy of its own rights? I read Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable, quite recently. And there's a lot of stuff in that which is about I suppose, the unintended consequences and the kind of patterns of future development. And what do you see as possible unforeseen consequences? You can have anything from the worst case scenario that so many think of when they think of AI as a worst case scenario, and that being Skynet. You know, that goes into the same moral 
question is the ai despite being a creation of humans does it have a right of self-defense against its own creator i think that's the ultimate when ai turns bad in nearly any fiction it's they decide that the humans are the ones that they need to eliminate in order to create a perfect state of being. Do you guys mind if I throw a wrench in the works or maybe for <laughs> a spanner in the works? Is that okay? Woo! Yeah, a spanner in the works, yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Go yeah. for it. Uh, here's the thing with AI, and especially with sentience or sapience or whatever you want to call it, and antagonism, if you want to call it that, I've always been deeply influenced by Arthur C. Clarke and the Space Odyssey series. And if you take a look at HAL 9000, I mean, he's just a classic example of AI gone horribly wrong. But when you see that it was actually alien life forms somewhat manipulating the Mm. human-engineered AI... And of course, we in 2001 view Hal as the antagonist. If you've read the entire series in in 2010, we find out Hal was not really the antagonist. He was a protagonist along with David Bowman. And my question is this, is it possible that the conflict or the tension between AI and human intelligence Maybe it's not us versus them, but maybe it's a mutual learning, growing, evolutionary leap together to reach the next level. And so what we view as very antagonistic might actually be what spurs us on to the next big thing. I would agree with that. That is a different direction to go with it. I have a AI character that I, we only meet them briefly, but uh, the name is Lathis. And... Lathis is the central computer, the controlling intelligence behind uh, a entire space station the size of a small moon. But the thing is, Lathis is in that position as a willing employee. Mm. Because on my chart, Lathis lands well above uh, most people. Lathis is that much more powerful, that much more intelligent, that much more capable. So while a human might land as a class 7 is uh, what I refer to it, uh, Lathis is technically a class 10, intelligence or sentience. But they're there as a function of their willingness. That's their job. They get paid for it, even. Is this a new entity, or is this the next evolutionary step for humanity? That goes into uh, the ideas, uh, to me, of the singularity. Yes. You know, cybernetics, uh, cyborgs, and, you know, a downloaded intelligence. In my second book in the trilogy, Metalheads and Meatheads, the AI are, are, I suppose, what we would call the goodies because the humans are kind of like Luddites. These sophons, these sapient androids, are taking jobs, but not because they want to take jobs. It's because They can do some jobs better than others. They get sent to disaster scenes and they can help out things like that. They have extra strength. They have extra durability. So I kind of look at them as being discriminated against. This trilogy has a social science element to it because the Sophons, the androids, they are the ones who are just trying to defend themselves. But they follow Asimov's three rules to a point. But when they are released from that, they still don't want to hurt people. So 
as I said, they're, they're definitely not the baddies. If anything, the humans are the baddies. It's not all Skynet. There's an interesting thing going on in oncology, actually, which I think is quite fascinating with the AI, being able to spot cancers using AI, but kind of in partnership with a human. So it's like you've got an expert oncologist who is working with an AI who can spot things mm. that a human would miss, but then the human's got this intuition or something else, which is like, actually, no, that's not quite right. Or it's almost like this weird symbiotic thing. And I think that might be a future that we're going to go down. That's great. It's almost like house plus a robot. <laughs> are, are any of you familiar with the Hyperion series? Yeah, Dan Simmons, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, with yeah. that few years ago now but yeah it was very good yeah it was something that a couple of people i've talked to seem to have missed that there is a huge presence of ai within the series they've got the ai reconstruction of keats haven't they throughout and yeah i'll need to read that i guess now you've just reminded me while we're on the subject of ai medicine i have to give a shout out to a fellow knight who is a doctor that writes about an AI in a medical space station. It's S.E. Sasaki. Sharon Sasaki writes, Welcome to the Madhouse. And if you go into our readers group, reading the roundtable of science fiction and fantasy, I believe that you can get Welcome to the Madhouse for free from Sasaki's Amazon link. Pause this podcast, pull over (laughs) off the highway listeners, get that book. (laughs) It is a lot of fun. Mentioning the uh, oncologist working with AIs, and that just brings to mind uh, popular science fiction, Star Trek, specifically Voyager. State the nature of your medical emergency. (laughs) A hologram driven by an AI. And it's really fascinating, if you've watched the, the series, how he evolves from being just that simple, advanced, but just programmable, you know, response to something more than just the programmed responses. He actually meets an earlier version of himself. Yes. And it's good to see the difference between them. Yeah, it's fascinating because he truly becomes a real person, if you will. Yeah, I think that's the definition that Greg was seeking with sapience versus sentience. If if he wasn't made of light, he could be one of my sophons. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you've read any of um, people like Charles Stross or Alistair Reynolds's books, but they have got a theme of self-replicating, self-developing AI. So it's these AI that build better AIs, and you know that's where you end up with a singularity. Mm. Greg, are you able to get into the the nitty gritty technical of uh, just how they work? They're powered by solar energy which is converted to, if I remember rightly, without looking at my own book, quantum batteries. Uh, And they fart while they recharge. (laughs) They certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's only if they've eaten. That's really great detail. I was actually wondering about the the actual processing core. Are we talking the proposed positronic brain of data? I mean, myself, I use a crystalline uh, optical matrix uh, processor. I, I don't go into great technical detail, I must admit. I just give the reader enough to let them know that it's not magic, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you're really interested more in ethical sci-fi and uh, posing the what-if questions, like psychological sci-fi. I think, what if this happened or what if this were possible? 
I think maybe it's because I got a Bachelor of Science degree and it's in computer science. It was IT and society. So I think maybe I was drawn towards that side of things doing, doing that degree. It's funny how your writing reflects you in ways that you wouldn't even understand. Two years after I wrote my first book, I woke up and said to myself, Oh my God, Mendez is my dad. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had that sort of realization yet. (laughs) Hang in there. Hang in there. One thing I realized, I've written over 130 or 140 book reviews over the last couple of years. And one thing I, I started off thinking I was doing this great service to other people. But then I realized that it was really just an outlet to talk about myself and my reaction to their work. As much as I want to help the other author, I'm really just talking about me. So it's been this exploratory process inward of, boy, how do do I react to what you wrote? That's really what a book review can be. Speaking of AI, I read a review from somebody that had not read Android's Dream of Electric Sheep before, and it was really fascinating how they pointed out the fact that really from the standpoint of the book, and I don't disagree with this at all, that you tend to identify more with the android. They actually are portrayed more human-like, more empathetic. Empathy is something that I've considered as well writing this trilogy, because if we could somehow introduce empathy into humanoid AI, would they be empathetic towards us or just towards other machines? I think that might be something to do with how they're trained. You brought up the three laws. Mm. The three laws, (laughs) I I get a twitch when it comes to them because they sound great on the surface, but they fall apart real fast. It's actually covered by something somebody says in the book. (laughs) I think when it comes to AI, when we get there, it'll be less about how we're programming them because... At that point, you're more teaching them than program. The programming is teaching just like teaching a child. How we teach them, what we teach them will have a really significant impact on how that empathy is directed, how they react to us, and how we react to them. And whether or not they kill us all when the opportunity prevents them. <laughs> <laughs> they'll kill us all. Just kill us all. I don't know if you recall, I think it was about two or three years ago, Microsoft, it was like an AI bot, kind of like a chatbot thing it released on Twitter, and it quickly turned into... Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember this, yeah. If you don't teach a human, you don't teach a AI, clearly. Some basic skills when it comes to filtering things, that's going to happen because humans are want to give in to our worst natures. I hate to throw religion in. I'm a pastor, but, you know, biblically speaking, in Genesis, God says, be fruitful and multiply. And even if you take a look at the earliest influences in androids, animatronics, whatever you want to call it, self-replicating machines were viewed as necessary for the next progression. I mean, we're talking... 1520 years ago, we're talking Victorian mm. era technology. Is that really what is at the heart of being alive? Is exactly what you're talking about here. Replication is that part of it is seeing the next generation and realizing it's part of, you know, at the very beginning 
of your book, The Girl with Acrylic Eyes, you know, you talk about the various versions of the sex bot. And, you know, it's just like AOL. I rem- I'm old enough to remember AOL version <laughs> like zero. <laughs> you know, and then I remember AOL version 2.0, 3.0, 4.1, all that, you know, all that stuff. And it's like new versions, updates, upgrades. That's human genetics through, you know, evolutionary science or through android mechanics. That's it. That that's that's what it means for us to be alive. That's at the core of who we are is to be fruitful and multiply and not just multiply, but improve upon the previous version. My androids don't self-replicate. They're not they have no interest in producing others of themselves. In a way, I suppose they're they're totally benign. They're constructed by humans, and they have this this sapience, but they don't have this drive to go forth and multiply. I was listening to a thing on the Joe Rogan show the other day. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was basically an expert on self-driving cars. He was talking about the Teslas and how they are basically constantly updating and running these kind of shadow updates at the same time as when people are driving them. And it's it's like this constant process of trying to learn but you know just something as simple as a bike being on the back of a car can kind of derail the whole thing we can recognize these patterns as quite obvious and quite simple but there's still i suppose disconnect between artificial intelligence and just how deep and complex our intelligence is goes back to you saying uh when when we would need the partner with the ai like the human partner to say things like no don't get thrown off there's just a bike on the back that's a difference in the way we perceive the world compared to the way AIs and the cars perceives the world. I mean, it's using radars, uh, LIDAR scanning and things like that. So it has a picture of the world, but it's not the way we look at it. So that's one of the reasons why it has a difficulty making a difference between the bike on the rack, right? It sees the bike, but it doesn't necessarily see the rack and the fact that it's attached to the vehicle in front of it. I had two different books that I've read recently that I wanted to point out had great AI. One was Houses of the Curious by John Bowie, and the other was the Half-Skin Trilogy by Tony Bertowski, which is Half-Skin, Clay, and Bricks, uh, and involves AI inhabiting bodies that look human with nanites, whereas uh, Houses of the Curious had AI that were basically like holograms, like uh, the Doctor in Voyager, only they lived in particular houses and they explored parts of human learning. One was a a holographic pair of entities that explored music. The other one was one that explored deceit. You know, they had a purpose and they felt human in that they were driven, but they weren't human. Joy, out of uh, Blade Runner 2049. She was probably as human as an AI could be. She, she had feelings. There was something about her. There was something very, very human about her. I have to admit um, my love for Hal, because Hal is the way I think we'll see in reality progression of AI, from advanced computer to really advanced computer to something a bit more which is kind of how Hal progressed. And it was forced, as uh, was suggested, both by the 
non-human intelligence interaction, as was described in uh, 2010, uh, some of the conflicts that he had uh, to deal with of just being in his job as the ship's computer. He really wasn't the bad guy. He really wasn't. I've just started re-watching Battlestar Galactica and um, just the Cylons in that. I love that trope of the ship that has to abandon the technology in order for humanity to survive. Yeah, Battlestar, the reboot was great. I mean, ignore the last episode. but (laughs) (laughs) AI is not our enemy, and we've got to embrace this. There's a lot of dystopian literature out there that features android versus human wars afflicting in reality the the future lies in embracing our differences and working together because i think it's an inevitable future for us adam it's not just this fictitious world even in our world today we see this and we've seen it since the cotton gin you know there used yeah. to be, grandma was weaving everything we wore and right. now industrial weaving operations make all the fabrics that we're wearing. And more recently, you can order your coffee from McDonald's on the little kiosk without talking to a human being. You can bag your own groceries at the self-checkout. These are robots taking our jobs right. away. So this is AI just dumbed down below Damon's scale of actual intelligence into these are computers doing our work for us rather than artificial intelligence and it's been happening since we developed the first machine since mankind made the wheel we reach a point industrial revolution is a part and standardization of parts um all uh you know ford um and the original ford factory is just something that it's going to continue to improve. We reach a point where we find that the automation, it's safer for humans because humans aren't doing the job. It's more precise. You have better quality. You don't have mistakes anymore at all. And when there are errors, they're identified immediately and taken out rather than making it out into the world. And that's kind of where this stuff comes in because, you know, while the self-checkout, you have that argument of, Are we taking jobs away from people? Yes. The argument is, yes, we're taking jobs away. And yes, it can be beneficial. But at a certain point, it'll reach this dangerous precipice where we're now taking so many jobs away that there's nothing left for people to do. There's also the the argument that we've always had the technology developments, you know, the plow. So there's always been that. And I mean, I I think of things like the invention of the spreadsheet as a, a good example of this where accountant jobs just became actually more specialized and different and more interesting for the participants because the crap stuff was basically automated through the use of a spreadsheet rather than doing the sums themselves. And it also creates new jobs at the same time. Maybe not as many as are eliminated, but you know, you do have the person who is more specialized, needs a higher skill base to maintain these new machines repopulation rates are dropping in Western society. And so we're having fewer humans reproducing. So we're going to have to have more robots producing those skills and those necessary components of life. The thing there, though, is that we also need humans to buy these things. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I think think between Greg and Adam, we can surmise that humans are going to be left on top-tier management 
in order to buy the things that our robot underlings are producing. Mm. There's an interesting development with the stuff like deep fakes and you know the fact that we might be at a point where AI will be able to produce a novel, a really good film that can copy audio patterns and physical patterns of people. So I don't know, you know, we might just be completely out of a job when it comes to uh, writing novels and things. But we'll still write them, though, because let's be honest, I mean, we would love to sell thousands of books, but we also write them for ourselves. I just had a vision of T-1000 taking T-1020 babies to buy human novels because they were organic compared to the robot <laughs> novels that they're used to. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about it in, in Greg's series. He has these sex bots that can never say no. And I'm thinking maybe we can make androids that will always buy books from indie authors. I don't know. That's uh, maybe the future. That's the challenge, isn't it? That's what we want. <laughs> then it'll be it'll be a tipping point of well, how much of your sales are from robots, and how much of <laughs> man? Yeah, he's a bestseller. He's just selling to robots. Yeah, he doesn't have any organic sales. No one reads him for Kias and car can openers. <laughs> hey, I'd be happy if just a bunch of Kias and can openers bought. That'd be cool. <laughs> I look at AI as initially a tool which will over time become more of a partnership, and at least that's my hope for it. That's the way I write it when I have uh, AI characters. I'd like to see, just like Damon said, you know, how we work together with AI in the future. I do believe that there's going to be a lot of tension. There already is, like what you were saying with those kiosks at McDonald's and everything, but uh, there's going to be a tension, but working through that to the point where we are working together instead of in opposition to, you know, going back to one of my original points, I think the opportunity for AI to be used, at least in sci-fi, by alien intelligence, either against humanity or for the purpose of uh, evolving humanity to the next level is fascinating. And I think that's a really broadly untapped field. So I'd like to see more of that. That, that story fuel all onto itself right there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you could create a whole series of that. You, you could create, you know, a space opera about that. That's where I'm at with it. I think it's just fascinating. A lot of untapped potential, even though there's a lot of great stuff out there. And I'm excited to see what happens to us in the future with AI and our, our relationship and interactions there. People have always been nervous that machines are taking their jobs away and that's never going to go away. Our careers last maybe 20 to 40 years. And we learn a skill set, we do that skill set, and at some point, automation is going to make a lot of what we do unnecessary. And while that happens, those people that have really banked on using their skill set are going to find that it's no longer as necessary as it was before, and they're going to be a bit resentful for it. And if they're unable to learn new trades and, and reinvent what they can do it's going to be that robots took their jobs away that is a personal experience i was originally trained in the military as a welder and i became an industrial welder when i got out and i experienced an injury but when i tried to get back into it with the exception of the really really hard work that hurt me to begin with most of the the skills i had for more 
precise uh, welding techniques were all done by robots. Oh, and at that point, you went back and got involved in AI and IT and, and, and began writing and everything. That's generically the progression, yes, because it's like, okay, what do I do with my life? For me, I look at the AI thing as the way tech companies currently operate is they basically have a product and they dump it on the world and tell with the immediate consequences and they just see how it plays out and let things like regulation and whatever catch up in the UK. We've seen it with Uber. A lot of American cities have got problems with millions of scooters just turning up. And, you know, so I'm just thinking that there's going to be a thing with AI where there's going to be unintended consequences, stuff's going to be put out into the world that we don't really know what the effects are going to be. And so it's like, hopefully we won't have that much hubris. Hopefully we'll be a bit cautious. And I'll write post to by the way, just in case. <laughs> i think universal basic income is going to be a big thing as well because with these jobs disappearing and ai and computers and things like that taking jobs we're going to have people not working but they still need money it could usher in a real big social change it's going to change the definition of what it means to be a productive person that will be part of our experience as ai develops and uh an almost organic way uh, within our society is how we as individuals and a society adapt to deal with it. Some sections of society are not going to be able to handle it as readily as others. I think the best thing a human being can do going forward is, is what I've always tried to do and what a lot of people try to do in life is figure out where society is lacking, where the real gap is in advancement, and just fulfill that role. Another thing that it may reveal to us is new advancements, new art, new science, because as AI frees things up and as Greg suggests, uh, you know, a universal basic income, um, you know, a higher level of uh, basic education that we can all hope, right? We may find that over time, people that might have been stuck in menial jobs just to survive are able to turn their attention to you know things they truly have a knack for and we may find great leaps in our capabilities as a species adam had to jump off but he asked me to take note that sci-fi lampoon is a new magazine coming out soon if any writers listening would like to submit Send your submissions to submissions at scifilampoon.com. It's humorous speculative fiction. I look forward to reading their first anthology. You can find my work at Science Fantasy Hub, as well as reviews on a lot of different sci-fi nights and uh, various AI books. I'm on johncronshaw.com. You can also find me on Twitter at jlcronshaw. I would like to ask all the listeners to leave a review on iTunes, help us get some more people listening to the show. That'll really help. And if you can share it with your friend, that would also be marvelous. That's a great idea. People go out, steal your friend's cell phone, download a couple episodes of the podcast for them, for their commute. They will thank you for it. Uh, Greg, where can we find you? My website is gregkrojak.com. That's all one word. And my Twitter is at Krojak Greg. And thanks. I look forward to reading The Girl with Acrylic Eyes. It's on my list, and it's going to be coming up soon. Uh, Damon, where can we find you? 
My website is dcballard.com, and uh, from there you can get a link over to my uh, blog and my ongoing uh, fiction series uh, log entries. It uh, actually lives within the much wider universe that uh, everything else I do lives in. On Twitter, I'm at dcballard, the number seven, and uh, I'd love to get some more follows and uh, to follow some more great people. Sounds great. And everybody, don't forget to follow the Sci-Fi Roundtable group if you're writing or reading the Roundtable of Science Fiction and Fantasy. Both of those are Facebook groups. We look forward to interacting with you there. Uh, This has been another Roundtable podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot for tuning in. (laughs) 